Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. With over 200,000 locations throughout the U.S. and offering 12,000 different types of batteries, stop into your local Interstate Battery store today and let them help you find the right batteries for your everyday life. everybody welcome to another land and legacy habitat heroes podcast i'm your host adam keith um it's just going to be me this week matt is traveling consulting in uh, pennsylvania he wrapped up one today and he's working on another one tomorrow uh we were going to have him on the phone but where he's traveling he's in and out of service so uh it's just me um but it is all good because we're covering one of the most discussed one of the most uh raved about topics especially this time of year if not all year long when it comes to deer management, and that is food plots. Um, lots of questions. We gave you guys the opportunity this uh, this week to write in questions on our social media handles, Land and Legacy at Facebook, and then also Land and Legacy on Instagram. And we got a lot of great questions, a lot of things that is definitely going to take up the full hour um, this week on our podcast. A couple announcements before we jump in. Be sure that um, to help us out, continuing keeping this podcast going, leave us a recommendation on Facebook or um, leave us a review on our iTunes um, or wherever else you're listening if if you have the opportunity to leave a review. It's much appreciated. A couple weeks ago, um, I offered up a book, uh, Sand County Almanac, and we had a winner because he left a review uh, he was the first one to leave a review on our Facebook page. Last week, gave away a Hooks turkey call, um, Hooks custom calls, um, turkey call. Gave it to, I haven't shipped these out yet. They're coming very soon, fellas. Don't think I just got your review and left you hanging. Um, but Brady Bradley down in Arkansas. So, uh, much appreciated to you guys. I'm going to continue this podcast thinking and of what else I can give away. Um and it may even be a land and legacy conservation cap, or it may be a. It'll. I'll tell you what. I got it right here. I'm gonna I'll ship out land and legacy logo cap. A blue. Uh, it's a blue mesh back cap, navy blue with our logo on it. I'll ship it out to somebody um, through this podcast. Uh, that's listening to this podcast. Ship it out to somebody. Uh, we'll figure out how you got how you got to win that hat. Um, as this podcast moves along. All right, so when we're talking food plots, there's all kinds of people discussing food plots this time of year. Um, I've got all kinds of things spinning around in my head. If you don't know it by now, I have a severe case of ADHD, it seems like. So it's hard for me to keep on track. And, And so this week, it's just me. So we may be chasing rabbits all the whole hour long. But one thing we will discuss is food plots and all kinds of different food plot scenarios. Um, by now, you've heard us discuss, even last week uh, on the For Love of Land podcast, when we were discussing um, the equipment, the kind of the bare bones equipment for a, a farm purchase of, of what you might need, a, a UTV with a cultipacker and a sprayer. Um, so 
there's all kinds of different techniques, but in, and I'll try and round this out um, real quick before we start answering all these questions, because I've got a lot of questions I've got to go through. But I want to, since this is all things food plots, I want to discuss some of our favorite techniques and the techniques we use on all our food plots. When it comes to small food plots, if we can't get a no-till drill into the food plot, the technique we like to use is the spray plant and roll, or mow plant and roll. Um, different ways you can do it, but honestly, in a lot of applications or a lot of a lot of different places, um, invasive species are a problem even in food plot areas. So whether that be uh, Cerise lespedeza or Johnson grass, um, herbicide is usually needed in a, most of the sites that we see with our consulting business, as well as on our own farms. Um, so herbicide one-time treatment usually before we plant is what we try to do. We live by the mentality uh, in a lot of our food plots is spray and smother. So we try to spray, kill what, what is growing, and then smother it with other species to where it doesn't have the chance to grow. Um, for a lot of times, I think I think some people may have the question or what's the what's the perfect what's the perfect mix or the perfect food plot and it really depends on her density, the location, the site on what the soil is. Um, but if you haven't figured this out by now, the goal for us has always been native landscape. Um, so I would pick a we use soybeans a lot. We use the heritage blend or, or different diverse blends a lot. And these are all a way to supplement our deer herd to get more forage. But at the end of the day, there's some food plots that we've created that the end goal is to put them back in native species, whether that be a mix of, it, it's most likely going to be a mix of forbs, grasses, and uh, and other and some other native species with shrubs and things. And so that's the goal. And and you may say, what? Why would you want to do that? Long before there was food plots, long before there was crop fields, there were still native landscapes and there were still lots and lots of wildlife. They made their living off the native landscapes for years and years and years. It wasn't until the last 40 years that food plotting, and you'd probably even say 30 years, that food plotting really became popular. Um, so... Our wildlife have the ability to survive off native landscapes. Now, you have to also understand that a lot of our landscapes are no longer the native setting that they once were. So if you're picturing in your head, well, that's not true. There's Deer can't survive off the native landscape because they're always eating my food plot and, and I get huge winter kills. That's most likely because you don't have the native landscape that was there. So uh, for my area, for example, oak woodlands, oak savannas, um, and, and they call them barren hillsides or, or kind of glady, glady hillsides, uh, open hillsides that were grasslands. Um, we have way less than 10% of those now. So we don't really have a lot of the native landscapes that are they're really predominant, but they're not that far off in, in some places, in a lot of places, where we could get them back to being way more productive to where our food plots become just supplements. They're a hunting strategy. They're not a way to um, make allow the deer to survive year round. Um, and the other reason why food plots are are not on our uh, on our high list of of things that we must do right away is because um, a lot of the food plots we're planting, and especially the ones we're discussing on today's podcast, they're really beneficial only a few certain species. When you get into the native landscape, that's when you can be more 
productive and more beneficial to the entire native landscape and native species. So um, it may benefit quail. It may benefit uh, grouse if the, if that's your area. It may benefit uh, wild turkey, white-tailed deer, obviously. Uh, but it may start benefiting uh, small songbirds um, or migratory birds that are coming through, migratory songbirds. Uh, we always want to think big picture and try to make sure what we're doing is not detrimental to something else. So, segue that right into my other key point with food plotting. Just because you have a piece of ground and you're wanting to hunt doesn't mean that a food plot is the best thing you can do on your on that piece of ground. We have seen, and it's becoming more regular as the popularity of food plots have come up, that a food plot has more detrimental to the land than just letting it sit vacant and and fallow and occur the way it was before you got there. It breaks my heart to see a native landscape, let's say a prairie, that's got a great mix of native grasses and wildflowers and some shrubs or some sumac or plums, and it all gets bush hogged and turned into a food plot that the person's not putting the appropriate soil amendments in and it's a very unproductive food plot. That's when we have huge issues with food plotting because what you did was try to con- you tried to manage nature instead of managing with nature. Um, and so that that's a huge issue. So if you've got a place where you're like, I, I'd like to do a food plot, you need to assess what's there first. Assess what is um, growing if it's native species, if it's non-native species, if it's invasive species, by all means, let's take care of that problem. But if it's a native landscape, um, there's a good chance whatever you do to a plant there still won't be as productive as what's there occurring naturally. Um, and that's that's a huge issue for us and, and can be a huge issue for uh, just overall the use of the term deer manager, land manager. If we're a land manager... We should be focused on managing the land to maximize its productiveness, to replicate nature, to restore nature, uh, or restore the native landscape to where it's beneficial to all those native species. Um, so if you take it out of a native landscape that was benefiting um, a little ground nesting or shrub nesting uh, songbird, um, and then you're using a plow and a disc, oh, it almost makes me hurt saying that. Um, you're destroying now soil microbial activity, um, um, micro- the microbes that are in that soil. You're you're killing those off. You're you're harming the soil. You're harming the native species, and you're doing more bad than you are good. Just for the idea that you may be planting something that you can hunt over during the deer se- during deer season. So that's a huge issue. Woo! Got that all said. That's always something I want to talk about when it comes to food plots because. Just because it's an opening or just because it's a piece of ground, just because you're a deer hunter doesn't necessarily mean you have to have food plots. So, with all that being said, I want to remind you again, I love food plots as long as they're uh, in the appropriate space, used appropriately, and we're not putting our foundation of deer management, land management on food plots because they should be they should be used uh, in a lot of instances, they can be great. They can be a great way to get the kids involved. But at the same time, you don't want to be harming the land just to put in a food plot. All right. So got that off my chest. Lots of questions. Love you guys for all this interaction. Um, 
you're sending in a lot of great questions. At the same time, that brings up another another point. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel or make sure you're following along on our Facebook channel as we start dumping and, and uploading more videos as the weeks and years progress. Um, you've noticed the last three weeks we've dropped a video. That's going to continue. So there'll be another video dropping this week and next week, and we're going to try to continue this cycle of dropping videos every single week. Right now it seems like a lot of turkey hunts, but I can assure you um, there's going to be a lot of a lot of videos coming in the near future that show uh, past experiments, techniques, things that we tried, things that may have failed, things we learned from, because we are here to help you with your land to prevent some of the mistakes we have made or have seen made. Um, and so one of those biggest going to food plots that we did was years of plot heavy tillage. Uh, we killed soil health. We really dropped our organic matter, and it's caused a lot of problems that we still fight today. So um, we have ways that we're hopefully going to speed it up and reverse it, um, but it is a process. And so hopefully uh, with our podcast, with our video series, with our consulting business, we're here to help you. Um, all right, so we're going to jump into the Facebook questions first now that we are um, 12 minutes into this, and I don't know how much, we've got a bunch, a bunch of questions um, coming. So first one was Mr. Dalton Harmon. He asked, big question, I have been uh, been planting alfalfa for a food plot, but also for a moneymaker when it comes to baling and selling it. I know it probably doesn't bring as much uh, monetary as uh, soybeans, but I already have the hay equipment. We see this one a lot. This is uh, something that we have... Uh, We've worked with a lot of people on this, and uh, one of the biggest things when when you look at overall land management, you own a piece of property. Most guys are going to say, i got to find a way to make money on it. And at the same time, I want to make money on it, but I still want to have great hunting. And um, you'll see hay equipment, you'll see cattle, you'll see whatever it is. Uh, I almost said horses, but I'll, I'll share a little phrase with you that I've heard and used a lot over the last couple of years. But what is the difference between the smell of cattle manure and the smell of horse manure? It's the same difference as making money and spending money. When it comes to owning the farm and you're trying to make money, so you may have cattle. Of course, we're huge advocates of, of appropriate grazing. Um, rotational graze, using a herd to replicate nature or the, or the um, bison herds pre-settlement. Huge advocates for that. That's a great way to make money off your farm and a great way to have tax benefits. Haying is another way or crops is another one. Um, trying to find ways to uh, use that money-making um, system that also benefits your wildlife. So when it comes to grazing, a, a great way, which is what we're in the steps of switching over the family farm, it'll be adding native grasses, native warm season grasses, with some other, with your, the old technique of, of grazing uh, cool season grasses like tall fescue or smooth brome or orchard grass or uh, whatever the, the species is. Those are non-native and um, they're not as beneficial to wildlife. But instead of having all your grazing acres devoted to that, you can you can do half of them, or I think the recommended rate is 30 to 40% is in native warm season grasses. That's what we're doing. At the same time, we're getting better 
habitat um, because now we have better nesting habitat. We have better cover for the deer. Um, there's more food available in those native stands because you're going to have forbs that they're going to eat at a young stage or browse with some of the shrubs that are coming up around the edge. So that's that's all great. When it comes to haying, um, what is it that you can plant that's beneficial to wildlife as well as your pocketbook? And alfalfa's really hard to beat. We've recommended a lot in and uh, in landscapes on on farms we've worked where it may be uh, it may be a, a complete monoculture of um, Bermuda grass. Bermuda grass isn't providing anything for your wildlife hardly at all. If any, it's a short turf grass, warm season grass. There's no forage value there for most, especially white-tailed deer. So if you convert it to a, uh, alfalfa, now you have forage value, but also a little bit you have a lot better hay, uh, hay quality as well. So alfalfa is one of those fields, one of those species that, that can be a great thing to plant for money, uh, for selling the hay, but at the same time provide great benefit to the wildlife, for some wildlife, not all. Obviously, um, there's diversity is what we always talk about. You're planting a monoculture of alfalfa. But at the same time, you got to make the payments on the farm. you got to make some money. So that's where uh, we kind of bend and, and find what's best in those scenarios. So if you're asking me um, which one I would rather have, th- think about it like this. Um, when it comes to soybeans, if we're, if we're planting soybeans for a crop and we are we're, we're just trying to make money. So they get combined, let's say, sometime in October, November. From that, from that point with modern combine, that the day they get combined, there's a little bit of spill grain. It doesn't take long for that spill grain to get consumed um, by birds or, or deer, whatever it is. And you have to wait all the way till April or May to start getting something else growing. There's a huge stretch in there which contains probably the most stressful period for white-tailed deer uh, and a lot of other animals in that stretch with no food. Alfalfa, although it's getting cut for hay, there's still, if it's done appropriately, there's still a lot of green growth that goes through the winter and spring. So I would put alfalfa right up there with going, okay, if I'm if I'm planting something only for the the biggest benefit is my pocketbook, then I would probably lean more towards alfalfa because I have at least something growing to provide forage um, during that stressful time of the year during late winter, early spring. Alfalfa would be more important to me than a cut soybean field. Hopefully that answered your question, Dalton. Okay, Mr. Caleb down in Georgia. This is one I saw earlier and kind of brought up a lot of uh, research and different things. I'm going to keep this one as short, sweet as possible uh, and use some conversations I've had with certain people that are really involved in the organic um, fertilizer industry. And it, his question is, hey, I've got some, uh, oh, he's got the same hat on today. Sorry, that wasn't a question. That was just a comment about the video I posted, but uh, the conservation cap for the whitetail QDMA hat. But here's a topic that has come up recently, using poultry litter or manure as an alternative to fertilizer in food plots. Ooh, this is a loaded one. And I'm going to use Justin, uh, Justin Adams from uh, Pure Air when he says, hashtag it depends. It all depends on the fertile on the chicken litter. Um, obviously, uh, if you know anything about the poultry business, there is basically birds go in, 
They raise them. They get eggs. They're in there for a period, and then they're removed. A lot of times that, that barn is cleaned out at the same time. Most time it is. If you're getting chicken litter or you're getting it from a barn where most of that litter contains sawdust or other um, junk that we don't really want, that's not the chicken litter we want. Um, but chicken litter, in general, going back to his question, is a, is a pretty good alternative for fertilizer. Uh, in certain areas, it's really easy to get. Now, going back to our full-on management style is we don't ever want to create a system where our soils and our plants are dependent on that amendment of chicken litter or conventional fertilizer. We want to, and I'm not saying this happens year one, year two, year three. It may take us a, a couple years or more, multiple years to create this system to where we're just mining nutrients and keeping this cycle going to where we're pulling nutrients out of the soil, we're into the plant, the plant's consumed, goes right back in the soil, and the whole cycle continues. This is where grazing comes in extremely uh, at the top of the list on how can I create uh, healthy soil. How can I create healthy soil with lower inputs? And that's where you rely on the cattle or the bison to create the fertilizer for your um, for your soil, for your plants. With chicken litter, you can do that. But most important thing is you want to test that chicken litter before you start applying it everywhere else um, on your food plots. Test it. There's a lot of labs where you can test fertilizer, see what's actually in it to where not all chicken litter is the same. That's the biggest answer I have to Caleb here is not all chicken litter is the same. You want to test it. See what's in, in that from a nutrient standpoint because then that, that then that's going to depict on how much how many tons per acre you put on the soil. And so if you test it and you get your obviously number one soil test. You see how much MPK, all the other trace minerals and nutrients you need for your soil to get maximum productiveness and then you test your chicken litter. It may say that you'd have to go with extreme amounts of tons per acre. We don't want to do that obviously. When it comes to chicken litter um, conventional fertilizer. The biggest thing to remember is if one ton is good, eight tons is not great. We definitely don't want to overload our soils and overload our land with these um, outside resources, soil amendments, because that can create some major problems. Short story, rabbit trail. Please bear with me on this one. I have seen and discussed this with a lot of people, uh, but I don't find a lot of this on in research uh, on my own, but um, you can throw a system out of whack with, with chicken litter, with any kind of unnatural soil amendment. Um, you can throw the system out of whack to where you can create some uh, long-term problems. For example, um, I'd always kind of suspected or heard the, the analogy that if you use too much chicken litter, it could bring in more pests or you could introduce more pests to your landscape. Um, I've witnessed where lots of lots of chicken litter used as a fertilizer created higher numbers of wireworms and cutworms to where corn milo couldn't be grown anymore. Um, discussing that with some people who are really in this commercial organic fertilizer, they've definitely seen that to where if you add too much chicken litter long term, you can create very problem, uh, very high problem problems with that. So keep that in mind. Test it. 
don't get too crazy with it. Um, but in chicken litter as a whole, short-term fix, yes, thumbs up, as long as you test it and make sure everything's good. Um, had a question follow up with that. Um, I just saw this pop up. So there was another question of that. That's a huge, uh, that's huge around this area, mainly on hay fields. Guys use them. Uh, wondering, wondering, wondering the comparison between the two. I know I would never do cattle manure because of weed seeds, but poultry shouldn't have that. And then Caleb responded with him. Yeah, I've, uh, used it for several years now on crop field and food plots. I actually got about four, 400 tons delivered on Friday. So that's a lot of chicken litter, but I know Caleb's got a lot of acres they need to fertilize. So, um, chicken litter is a great alternative. Um, it's a, it's a nice quick fix, especially in a food plot world. If you're in an area that you can get chicken litter, um, I don't believe chicken litter is as hard on soil as conventional fertilizer can be with the amount of salt that's in conventional, um, fertilizer. Once again, the goal is not to continue putting fertilizer on our soils we want to fix that with our plants and with our management techniques to where long-term we don't have to do that. Um, the goal for my family farm is we're not going to have fertilized because we're going to use a cattle to do it for us. That's replicating nature. That was what was occurring pre-settlement. All right, next question. I don't even know how far we're in. We're already, well, answered two. I've answered two questions in 12 minutes. So not too, not too shabby. Um, Aaron Spencer asks, I currently have the fall heritage blend, um, plot up. So he's, he's discussing the legacy blend and uh, crimson clover is going absolutely nuts this spring. Um, it looks amazing. And he's actually thinking about leaving it up instead of tilling and planting a summer blend input, please. So crimson clover, crimson clover is one of them I've had to adjust and, uh, I've learned to now I love it. Um, early on, I didn't love it. Uh, about 10 years ago, first couple of times I started planting it. Um, and I'm going to share why crimson clover has got this real short window. It's an annual, it's an annual clover and it comes on really early compared to some of the other clovers, especially then if you compare it to soybeans, you're going to have crimson clover going nuts during turkey season, beautiful bloom pollinator. There's all kinds of bees buzzing around. Looks great. But in about a month or two, when it starts heating up, you get into more warmer temperatures, you're going to see it start going dormant um, because it went and made seed and that it ran its cycle. So being an annual, it's not continuing to grow out of that root. So it's going to be big, beautiful, blooming, and that bloom will turn into a mature seed. That seed has to fall on the ground, then germinate and grow up. So as you get into the heat of the summer, I've seen it go from absolutely beautiful food plot, lush green, to a month and a half later, it looks like there's hardly anything growing in this plot. That's an issue, especially if you're trying to provide forage for your deer herd during the summer months. Crimson clover is great, but in a monoculture, it may it is not so great. So adding that diversity, so answering Aaron's question, I would consider going ahead and moving forward to plant your summer blend if a majority of what you're seeing is crimson clover. That's uh, that's based off of trying to ensure that we have something growing in a food plot year-round. And the reason I'm so adamant about making sure if you have a food plot, you've got something growing year-round is for the fact that if it was naturally occurring and you didn't have a food plot there, nature would make sure there was something growing year-round that was probably beneficial to the wildlife. 
So if you're going to take it out of a native landscape and take it out of um, beneficial natives, doggone it, we better fix it or we better put something in there that does the same. It does something very similar, and that's growing year-round. So, Aaron, I would say go ahead and move forward in your planting and uh, try to get some sort of summer blend um, going this spring. Or you don't necessarily have to till it. You could go in and just drill in Milo or drill in an, another mix, a heritage blend. because And it may stun it a little bit because it's competing with that uh, crimson clover. But before long, that crimson clover is going to be going, um, going to seed and not taking in nutrients. So you could have just drill right through it and uh, with your summer blend, and it's just going to fill that void. So I wouldn't look at having to till it. Patrick Stewart asks, Heritage Blend and its usefulness as a screen. Still want to see pictures? <laughs> We've been getting asked this a lot. Um, and I've got two videos I have to edit um, to, to share with you guys to show you the progression of the Heritage Blend through this, through this fall and, and, and winter and then this spring. Um, uh, truthfully speaking, when it comes to annual screens, so the most popular Egyptian wheat, sorghum sedan. Now, and, and another one that you might say is corn. I've seen corn used a lot, um, mainly in crop country. And I think the reason why I do not recommend corn from a broad scale of, of across the country is anybody in timber country will probably tell you um, raccoons, and if you're in bear country, bears can destroy it. So what I've done, uh, I've planted corn in the past as a screen, um, and I planted it thicker than um, the recommended, you know, normal amount to plant for corn. I planted it really thick to try and get it only five foot tall, six foot tall, where it didn't make ears, and the raccoons still demolished it, and the bears still demolished it. So I didn't have anything. So I can't rely on corn to be a great screen. Plus, it's if you're in real fertile soil, you may have the fear of bringing deer to your screen uh, and standing where you're trying to walk in. So, um, corn is not high on my list. Sorghum sedan, Egyptian wheat, both very similar in their growth, uh, what they look like. And the biggest complaint I have with those is high winds, winter, uh, winter snows. As time progresses, they seem to fall over. Um and they don't provide. So if you're looking for late winter screens, sorghum sedan and Egyptian wheat aren't your screen mix. Um, now, when it comes to the Heritage Blend, Heritage Blend is great. Uh, it's a great summer attractant. Um, but what we have found is, is, and Caleb actually sent me pictures. Uh, the guy, I think I just answered his question. He sent me pictures of Sun Hemp down south um, and complained about it almost going to a tree I guess it wasn't a complaint because he says he loves it um, but it can grow because it's a it's a it's a very warm season um, plant a warm weather plant and so uh, it seems to grow really well down south I don't know I don't have I, I don't have any experience with sun hemp in the northern states but sun hemp in the Midwest still cool um, I've seen it in northern Missouri, southern Missouri, but on our farm, specifically in southern Missouri, it got about 8 to 12 foot tall. Um, it had the cowpeas and lab lab vining all over it, um, but mixed with Milo, it was the best summer annual screen I've ever witnessed. And the reason I say that is because it provided food during the summer months, 
but at the same time as it matured during the fall, it stayed standing all the way till heavy ice that we got in January. And even after that heavy ice, there were still parts of it that are standing eight foot tall. There's still portions of it that are standing four foot tall. Um, while my experience with sedan grass and Egyptian wheat is if any ice or snow comes, it almost gets flattened. So the sun hemp combined with Milo is an awesome screen. And if you're asking me what's the perfect screen and you're just trying to get by cheaply and get something growing, I would just do sun hemp mixed with Milo. Um, those two working together can be, I've seen one of the best summer annual screens out there. So hopefully that answers your question, Patrick. Be sure to check uh, our videos uh, over the next couple of weeks because I'll put one together soon to drop it. Um, because the great thing about sun hemp and milo is you can plant them later in the summer. Uh, you can plant them in July and still get great growth out of them. Whoo, here we go. Just rock and roll. It feels weird being the only one talking on the podcast. So, sorry, I, I almost forget to catch my breath. But Stephen asks, how vulnerable are, 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 how valuable are soil tests when trying to determine what to plant and where to plant? Can't say this enough. Can't emphasize this enough. Soil tests are crucial in food plot success. Think about it. Most of the things we are planting in our food plots are non-native. They are not adapted. They have not evolved to grow in the soils that are occurring there. Um, so it's going to take soil amendments to get them to grow, um, as in soil amendments, fertilizer, lime, etc. It's crucial. If you aren't taking soil tests on your food plots, and I know a lot of guys will do it every couple of years. I'll say, okay, I can live with that. I would rather take them every year. But if you're only taking them every couple of years, it's crucial. If you're not, it's you're letting the land down. You're not, you're being selfish. I'm being selfish. I've done this. I've been guilty. We're all guilty of this. We don't take soil tests. We try to find this little opening. We're like, hey, there's something in here. I don't really know what's growing, but I want a food plot. So we take it out of what's occurring there naturally, native landscape, and we put in a food plot, and then we don't do our job to make sure we're keeping the soil um, fed to where we can feed our plants. So soil tests have to be done um, for to get my approval. How's that sound? Um, I would do soil tests every year, especially on these, uh, if you're asking me on what to plant and where to plant. If you do a soil test and it's telling you, the soil is really poor. No matter what plant you pick in food plot world, I'll bet you the native landscape will have one better that's going to actually do, if that soil is terrible, it's it's very low organic matter, it's very sandy, whatever the case may be, and you're like, whoa, it's going to be tough, you're probably not going to find a plant that can do any better than, than a native uh, species on that site. So soil test every year. Uh, so Mark asks, he says two things. Um, looks like the, yeah, there are questions. Two things. How would you handle dog fennel as a weed in a clover field? We're using a wicking bar with Roundup. Oh, weeds in clovers. That's a big, uh, common question. And it's also a much debated and there's a lot of different answers out there. Um, and I will share this with you as a, when we look at, um, uh, clover plots and what we need to do to control weeds. It can get real expensive really quickly if you look at a lot of the recommended herbicides out there. Um, 
one of the one of the ones that you hear a lot is um, 2,4-DB, which is labeled for alfalfa. Um, it's used to kill uh, a lot of broadleafs that may grow in your food plot. Unfortunately, in my experience with it, and, and it has to be, I forget what it says on the label, but it's like weeds less than 10 inches. It's, it's uh, young broad leaves that you're trying to target. Once that plant starts to mature and get a little taller, you're not going to kill it most likely. You may stunt it, but overall you're not going to kill it. Um, then you need to use a grass-specific herbicide, uh, clethodim, to kill the grasses. Uh, at the same time, you're going to mix in some sort of surfactant with it. Uh, when it's all said and done, it can get really expensive. Um, then there's another herbicide I've heard Raptor mentioned a lot. Um, it's expensive. Um, here, here's my success. Uh, where I've had my very best stands of clover comes down to an, uh, more of an annual mowing. Every 30 days, depending on how much growth you're getting, um, you're mowing it and clipping it back. And, and basically that theory is you're going to clip it back and you're going to knock those weeds down and your clover is going, going to outcompete it to where that weed can grow back and still be a problem. That's a great way to keep weeds at bay. If you start fighting more, more weeds, like it may say, uh, like dog fennel, a, a wick is a great way. I can't emphasize how much we like wicks when it comes to uh, weed control in, in our fields. Um, especially in clover fields because you may only have short 10-inch tall clover and you're going to have weeds taller than that. Sounds like you're right on uh, right on track, um, Mark, with your uh, with your weed control with the wick. Um, speaking of clover and weed problems, we've said this a lot, but I'm going to say it again. Um, clover being a legume fixates nitrogen. As it's growing, it's pulling nitrogen out of the air, putting it in the soil. As it's mature as it starts growing and maturing, it doesn't need that nitrogen. And so it's putting that soil and that nitrogen in the soil. And so you have this overabundance of nitrogen, especially if you plant clover, you may notice that in four or five years, you start really fighting weeds and you're like, I need to terminate and start all over. No, we need to get that nitrogen out of that soil because if you have, if you had that amount of nitrogen in the soil and then, um, something happens, drought, uh, cows get out and they overgraze it and you have bare ground or slightly exposed soil nature's designed to cover that soil to where that soil doesn't bake it continues to create um, healthy soil um, nature does and so we have to put something there to take that nitrogen out of the soil and use that nitrogen or nature will do it for us and so every fall recommended planting cereal grains, wheat, oats, triticale, whatever, um, whatever those cereal rye, plant something that's beneficial to the, to that food plot area and also takes that nitrogen out of the soil. In the spring, if you're still fighting weeds, plant buckwheat, plant milo, plant some millets, try to get something else growing to take that, to take that uh, nitrogen out, but at the same time can provide some more benefit to the wildlife. So certainly add diversity to your clover plots. Um, a big one, add chicory to your food plots in the fall. Uh, if you're establishing a, uh, a clover plot, add chicory to it. That way you have a broadleaf and a legume. That way they can work together. Um, but mowing, and then if you really have 
if you don't have the uh, wick available, like Mark has, so Mark can be mowing and using the wick, and he should be um, great as long as he's continuing to add diversity with wheat um, and other things. In the if you're asking me to um, prioritize which one's more important, planting some sort of cereal grain in the fall or some sort of uh, broadleaf in the spring, like buckwheat um, or grass. I would rather you plant something in the fall. If if I'm ranking them on best ways to get that nitrogen out of the soil, I would plant a uh, oats or wheat or triticale or cereal rye, chicory in the fall to pull that nitrogen back out of the soil um, and put it in the plant because uh, clover's not as uh, not growing as quickly and um, as productive as it is during the summer months. So you're going to have better results planting something in the fall. Um, Okay, this next question. Liquid lime through a sprayer versus ag lime versus pelletized lime. Okay, um, three different types here. Ag lime, of course, uh, it's kind of rough. You may be getting different sizes. This is what a lot of farmers use. Um, it may take longer to get it into the soil, four to seven months, before you start seeing any uh, any results in your soil tests or any changes in your soil um, with the ag lime, but it's more of a lasting effect. It's not a once and done, as things in nature aren't usually once and done. Um, but ag lime, if you're looking at which one's going to be best, um, pelletized lime is generally more expensive because you're buying it in a 50-pound bag or 25-pound bag. You get quicker results. Um, liquid lime, quick results, not as lasting. Um, pelletized lime not as doesn't last as long as the ag lime can. Um, overall, to me, I'm going to go with ag lime um, for the fact that it's more long term um, and it's and it's more of a it's cheaper and uh, it's just a more long term fix um, than a quick results of liquid lime. I've tested, I've used all three of these, and I have not found the liquid lime spraying treatment that really changes uh, much in the grand scheme of things. Uh, pelletized lime had some results with it, some decent results with it, but uh, if you're not continuing to feed and, and use it, then you're not doing a whole lot. So I would rather use ag lime um, if it was me. Um, Phil, you missed out. Um, Shelby Gray tagged him, asking questions on his alfalfa field food plots. I don't see him anywhere on there. Let me down over there, my guy from my hometown. Um, the next question, Mackie Dartery, um, from Southeast Kansas says, "Woo, we normally plant sunflowers for dove and deer like them too. Oh, deer love sunflowers, not the actual bloom, but the young plant growing, but they'll eat the, the head later on in the winter if they have to. But, um, he says the success of this seems to be related to keeping them clean. The dove like bare dirt. So if we strip plant a dove blend, would this uh, be beneficial? And how do we maintain the bare dirt throughout the growing season? Planted Game Changer beans last year. We plan on planting Game Changer and possibly the new beans and staggering the planting dates. So, um, you guys have seen uh, and heard them on the podcast uh, talking with Kyle Hedges and Frank Longcarriage from uh, from their results or their studies on upland birds and specifically the northern bobwhite quail. Um, 
they're kind of advocate for this as well. When it comes to dub fields, keeping that bare ground is crucial for overall maximum productiveness of your dub fields. Um, so you have sunflowers standing and bare dirt underneath. Um, this is this is where I get torn when it comes to um, game management um, because if you've heard the podcast much, you know that bare ground is not our goal. Um, we do not like having bare ground because it's not great for the soil health. Um, it can be done, and it's not one of those things that I'm going to throw up the first year, but if it's done every single year, then I'm really going to have issues. But one year, not a problem. When we're talking about keeping it clean, it is spraying it throughout the summer. So once again, it's something that I don't like preaching a lot, um, but if you're trying to go with maximum production in your dove field, you need to spray it uh, a couple times during the summer to keep those weeds out to where you have that bare ground. So you want to continue spraying and keeping that ground bare, and then and then you've got your sunflowers up top. So basically, um, that's the process. If you're wanting if you're wanting the very best dove field you can, it's going to be planting your sunflowers and then spraying multiple times throughout the summer to keep those weeds from overtaking and growing up to where then you don't have that bare ground and you have more of a thatch layer on the on the ground covering the soil. So that's that's what you're going for. If you're asking me, um, oh, basically, is this beneficial? Definitely beneficial to the doves, but it's not something I would recommend doing in the same spot every single year. I would create a rotation to where um, you're not having the same spot with bare ground and sunflowers every year. So just rotate it and you'll be fine. Hunter, let's see here. What should you plant for building organic material in poor slash sandy soils? Should you bother planting these before you lime? Um, before your lime has a chance to increase the pH, or should you hold off on building organic matter until conditions are more conducive? Okay, loaded question there. Um, when it comes to organic matter, I'm glad you're very interested in organic matter, Hunter. Props to you on that. Um, I guess my my follow-up questions would always be, where are you at? Because if it's poor sandy soils, are we talking poor sandy soils in Oklahoma? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna drive down there and tell you to to not do anything and let let Oklahoma do the work because it's a good chance it's gonna be really productive native landscape. But if you're somewhere down the southeast, what is it? Poor sandy soils. Um, when it comes to I don't know when you added the lime. So if you added the lime a month ago, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna get any changes in the soil structure by uh, one month of lime sitting on it. It's going to take some time. Um, when it comes to organic matter, that's a great point too. Organic matter, you don't increase organic matter by the amount of growth you have above the soil. That is one way, but more importantly, the best way to increase organic matter is the amount of roots you have in the soil. So if your goal is to increase organic matter, at the same time, you're trying to create a productive food plot in sandy soils. What do we know? We know that it's probably dry site because it's sandy and it's poor. It's it's a dry site. So if we plant something that's shallow root systems or has very shallow roots, it's not going to be able to reach deep, pull up, pull up no, uh, nutrients, pull up moisture 
to continue grow, uh, continue growing and and withstand those summer months that that really stressful period uh, in a plant's life during late summer. So if I am here and I'm trying to increase my organic matter and I have poor sandy soils and it's not a site that I can get uh, native vegetation growing or it's not a site that uh, I'm I'm trying to control invasives, I'm gonna plant something that has a deep root that can withstand that. Milo comes to mind. Milo's got a huge root system. Sun hemp comes to mind. Has a great root system. It's a legume. Um, it's going to fixate some nitrogen. Both of those working together have a lot better root system than a soybean, um, than a clover. Um, but at the same time, I want to make sure I have plenty of stuff growing to withstand the heat and put some root system into the soil to where I can start building some organic matter. Ideal scenario, I'm grazing at some point to add some um, fertilizer and and, uh, and some more microbial life in that soil. Um, but milo, sun hemp, some millets, um, sunflowers, uh, basically the, uh, the Stratton Heritage Blend is by design for those poor sites to where we have a diversity of species that are all working together to grow to lean on each other to survive stressful periods. At the same time, there's a diversity of root systems to where if you continue this cycle of diversity, 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 something always growing. So you've got diversity through the summer months. You've got diversity through the fall. So if I plant the heritage blend in the spring and then the legacy blend in the fall, then the heritage blend in the spring, legacy blend in the fall, I've, I've got a, just a, I, I'm trying to think in my head. I think that's over 20 species between those two blends. Year-round, you have 20 species growing there um, just in what you plant. Um, that would be the way to get there. You're not going to increase organic matter or soil health by planting monocultures. Monocultures are detrimental um, to soil health. So you want to avoid monocultures like the freaking plague if you're wanting soil health, and I hope you do. We plant monocultures when we're trying to control other um, invasive species or other species that are become a nuisance. Our end goal is to have diversity on our food plots, um, whether that be native diversity or diversity that we plant. So for, for you, Hunter, try to stick with diversity. Make sure in sun hemp and milo and millets are included in that and buckwheat. Um, <laughs> I can go on and on about the, uh, these different species. But even I would even do it this spring. Um, I'm trying to get something to grow. Um, I would I would definitely do a, a blend of at least at least six species um, growing through the summer, and then plant something a high diverse mix next fall, and start this cycle of diversity and year-round plant growth. All right, John asks placement of stands over food plot or on a main trail to the plot, 10 yards, 10 yards off field, question mark. Um, this is to a, uh, effect of not killing does in the food plot. If you're talking about not killing does in the food plot, you need to do it more in uh, 10 yards off food plot or in the food plot. There's really no difference. You're making a disturbance shooting those does. Um, I really, I can't stress this enough when it comes to food plot design um, and food plot layout is little small food plots or places 
50 to 100 yards off a food plot. Maybe it's a small opening. Maybe it's a small opening that you don't even you don't even plant. You just create. Uh, you just cut some trees and create a bottleneck through felling of some trees. Some, um, if you want to call it edge feathering or just let's call it native barriers and cutting trees um, to create kind of a natural fence. Um, I would much rather do that than 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 shoot all my deer in a food plot, even does and bucks. Um, so it, when it comes to our strategy, we have a lot of stands that aren't anywhere close to a food plot. And that's so we can not only have better chance of seeing, uh, bucks that we're targeting moving during daylight hours, but at the same time, we can hunt the area without actually putting pressure on our food plots. So when late season rolls around, deer aren't used to having pressure in those food plots. So if you're going to tie my hands behind my back, and put me in a corner and say, year-round, what would you rather do? This next season, you can either do nothing, 100% of the time is hunting away from food plots, or 100% of the time is on food plots. What are you going to do? I'm going to take 100% of the time outside of the food plots. I'm going to plant the food plots and have destination food plots, but I'm not going to hunt them. I, I would suspect I would put a lot of my eggs in a basket saying I'll have more success not hunting food plots and leaving them as destination fields than hunting them 100% of the time. Hopefully that helps, John. Chad asks, what to plant, not my brother Chad either, what to plant on at times a very wet logging road that natural springs empty on uh, to portions of this logging road, and it's somewhat partially shaded? This, This is a great question, and it may take a rabbit trail to answer it. Um... When it comes to, uh, boy, I've got to, oh, no, I'm, I'm right on time. Um, when it comes to this scenario, let's first ask ourselves: is my food plot going to be more beneficial than what's already occurring there naturally? Let's say it's wild morning glow, uh, it's jewel weed, or it's common ragweed, um, whatever the species that may be growing there. Um, maybe it's even sedges or rushes because it's wet. Um, maybe it's some native cool season grasses, Canada wild rye, Virginia wild rye, um, bottle brush grass, river oats. Uh, maybe it's that. If that's all there, I'm going to have to ask, what am I gaining by trying to plant a food plot in this area? Because if it's already wet, it's going to be really hard for any of the species that we select for our food plots. Most of them don't like wet feet. And so, if if this is, if we're 100%, this has got to be a food plot, I'm, I'm on a logging, I'm on a timber company um, property down south, and I can only plant roadways, how can I, how can I create this and make this better? Number one thing is, we got to figure out how, is it even going to be worth it? Because this, this right here, Mr. Chad Clark asked the question about planting a partially shaded, partially wet area uh, on the side of a road. This right here is asking the question first, is there something we can plant that's going to be more productive than what nature is already producing there? Um, these are the sites that we see a lot more failures than we do successes. These are the sites that require a lot more attention on weighing the option of pros and cons. If I use the timber company as an example because you may, this may be your only site. If this is outside of Timber Company, and I'm going to share the next technique because this would be a quick way to get kicked off a Timber Company-owned farm. 
but it's called daylighting roads. Basically what you're doing is getting more sunlight to the road by cutting trees or cutting um, shrubs or whatever it is you're cutting, uh, what, what's taking up the sun's energy and shading that road needs to be removed to where sunlight can hit that roadway to dry it out, daylighting the road. Um, and, and this same thing can be done on small food plots. When, when people cut little, little bitty food plots and they run in with a rototiller that their dad used for a garden or their grandpa used on a garden, you're not really getting anywhere. You, there's not the amount of uh, benefit that you may think is going to come there. Um, so that's where it's crucial to understand the pros and cons of, of what's beneficial. And, and so daylight it. Get more daylight. Um, create more sun reaching the forest floor. That's also going to dry that out. At the same time, that's going to stimulate more native vegetation to grow. So in this scenario, the first thing I'm doing is I'm going to Make sure I can cut trees along the road, and I'm going to cut trees along the road and daylight it. I want to get more sunlight there. Once I do that, I may give it a year of going, okay, I want to see what grows first. Because if it's a mix of ragweed and all kinds of other beneficial species or native species, you're not going to get something to grow there that provides more benefit to the wildlife than that natural vegetation. So that's huge. Definitely have to consider that. Uh, probably not the answer you're looking for, Chad, but that's how passionate we are about uh, about the steps of prioritizing our workload and our money that was spent on the farm. This does not sound like a site that should have a lot of money dumped into it to get um, a small food plot. This is an area that sounds like a little bit of elbow, elbow grease, daylighting the road, and you're going to get more benefit just by doing that. Lee. Ask might be dumb. There's no dumb questions in land. Boy, that sounded like a teacher right there. Um, but I'm new to food plotting. Last fall was his first time. He's planting soybeans, cowpeas, and sun hemp blend in a few days. He's using a row planter that hooks up to his ATV, but he's unsure of how far to set my rows apart to be beneficial for all these seeds uh, to still benefit from each other. I was hoping to just broadcast my fall plot in between these rows in late September. Uh, that way I'm not disturbing the dirt too much. All right. So you've got three species that you're planting. Soybeans, cowpeas, and sun hemp. Soybean, legume, cowpea, legume, sun hemp, legume. Everybody follow along what, what I just did there, what we just discussed there. We've got three legumes going in. So if we can, why can't we add, Lee, let's think about adding a few more things. Milo would be a great thing to add in this. Um, and that brings up another point too with Milo and I'm not sure where Lee's out of, but let's just, uh, it doesn't say, but if he's in a Northern state, I saw this a lot this past consulting season, um, Northern states, heavy snows, snowpack, brassicas are a huge thing up there. A lot of people love them. I see them in a lot of those places. Snow hits, you don't have any food unless deer are digging it up. Milo is one of those things that can provide forage, standing grain that's got a lot thicker, stock that can stand the the snowpack. I would like to see more in this blend, Lee, uh, Milo being probably number one. And uh, plus that gives gives some more structure for the cowpeas to grow up. When we're talking about spacing, you're planting three species and only one of them is usually herbicide resistant. So if you're planting soybeans, cowpeas, and sun hemp, and that's what you're sticking with, 
um, you need to plant it at a higher rate. That way you can spray and smother the weeds. So you want to make sure you spray before you plant this uh, because cowpeas and sun hemp aren't herbicide resistant. They're not glyphosate resistant. So you're not going to be able to spray it until this next fall when you go in to plant your fall blend. Um, and you may not even spray. Who knows? But if that's the case, you're going to want to make sure you plant these at a lot higher rate than you may traditionally think you're going to plant them at because you want to make sure you don't have a bunch of exposed dirt, a 30-inch spacing, let's say, or an 18-inch spacing to where there's plenty of exposed ground for weeds to grow. That's that's flirting on disastrous results when it comes to a productive food plot. So if you're planting them, I would get, I would honestly get a couple inches would be my preferred spacing. Um, and frankly, I'd probably broadcast some sun hemp if you if you already have these and they're not mixed together. I would probably broadcast sun hemp uh, right before I plant because um, there's going to be some issues if if you're running traditional spacing from a planter. Um, you're going to have a lot of exposed dirt, and you're giving nature the opportunity to say, I need nature talking here. I need something growing uh, to cover that bare ground, and they just pick, and it could be uh, could be pigweed, could be mare's tail, it could be fireweed, it could be uh, any Cerisa lespediza. You're letting nature pick. We don't want them to pick in this site. We want to do it ourselves. So um, that's, a, that's definitely something you need to address. I would look to add more diversity to that especially milo, um, so you can have those beneficial species. Um, at the same time, fight off and not have to worry about your um, other other uh, weeds growing up. All right, I got some on Instagram to, to answer, and I have about, oh, I'm already at an hour. All right, so I'll have to go through these quick. Ryan Emmerich, food plots are key. Oh, yeah. <laughs> food plots are key uh, to antler potential. Change my mind. That's That's hilarious. Um, going way back with Ryan, I'll say, uh, you know, giant deer get grown, have been grown for years and years long before food plots at the same, consider your ratios too, with food plotting, how many acres are in food plots versus how many total acres you have in your farm. And I'm going to use a scenario too. If a lot of times it's less than 5%. So if you're a golfer, if you're a basketball player, if you're a softball player and you're devoting your time, let's say you're a baseball player, since that's that's my background, that's what I love um, the most, that's my favorite sport, less than 5%. In the game of baseball, let's say, oh, man, I'm trying to think of even a scenario. Um, when I'm hitting, I bunt less than 5% of the time. I go to practice and I spend over 90% of my time practicing bunting that doesn't make any sense to go to a to work in something and spend very little time at it in the actual real world but spend all my time in practice working on it tiger woods doesn't spend his entire practice session um chipping off pine cones out off off the fairway that's the same scenario of devoting all your time into food plots if they're a very small percentage of your overall landscape. Um, Michael Jordan didn't spend 90% of his practices shooting a fadeaway out of bounds behind the backboard. Um, The same thing is true for food plots. Don't devote all your time to something that's so low on your ratio of land 
um, and land use on your property. So there you go, Ryan. Hopefully I changed your mind, buddy. <laughs> uh, any, tips for, uh, any tips for starting two food plots in slightly overgrown pasture? Uh, how to best remove small trees, thick grass, and be successful year one. Ooh, sounds like a perfect site for old field management too. Um, so for you, this first year, um, if you're converting old pasture, and we're, and we're looking at prioritizing our money here, I would look at cutting the trees with a chainsaw, leave the stumps, cut them as low to the ground as possible. You're spraying it with your herbicide, and you're planting a uh, soybean. And this is where soybeans and other uh, herbicide-resistant plants come in handy um, because we don't know what the weed species, uh, noxious weeds, invasive species that may come up once you remove that turf grass from, from pasture. So I would go uh, first year, I would look at, I don't know what kind of equipment you have here. Um, if you don't have any uh, no-till drill, then let's look at um, basically spraying that area, broadcasting, and then laying it over with a roller to try and get um, some growth. Ideally, you are going to go in and plant with a no-till drill or a planter, and uh, you're just drilling right into that after you've sprayed. Two weeks later, you'll come in with the planter, plant into that dying vegetation and uh, you'll continue spraying throughout the growing season um, that would be ideal or you could spray it and then burn it and then once you have that exposed soil um, then you go in and you plant your uh, soybeans and you may broadcast them and go over with a rough drag or uh, a lot of people are going to end up using a dr uh, disc they're going to lightly disc um, after they've sprayed and then they're going to drag it and smooth it out. If you do that the first time, I won't scream. But continuing that process of planting, I might scream because you have the perfect opportunity for old field management here, which would be spraying that, uh, that pasture with some sort of herbicide. Let's just say it's either plateau, panoramic, or it is glyphosate during a time of the year when most of your native species, almost all of them are, are dormant. So that could be uh, late November, it could be early November, depending on where you're at. You've had a couple of frosts, but your cool season grasses are still photosynthesizing. That's a great time to spray them with herbicide. They pull it in the roots, it kills it. Um, that would be my steps. I wouldn't worry about if you have big trees trying to grind those stumps. That's an expense we don't want to worry about, especially, especially if it's just a few stumps. Let's just cut them low, remember where they're at, put some flagging by them to where we go slow if we're using a planter over them. Uh, how often are you spraying or mowing? Do you base it off of your schedule or just when it's needed? Just when it's needed. That's when we're spraying. Um, in a perfect world, we spray once in the summer, and we don't usually go back, especially if we plant a diverse blend like the Heritage Blend. Um, we don't usually go back because you can't. There's multiple species in there, and only one of them is herbicide-resistant. So we're spraying one time before we plant, and that's it. Um, there's a lot of different techniques out there where people are trying to eliminate herbicide expense uh, or or using herbicide, um, but I haven't seen one other than using cattle um, that have completely eliminated herbicide. Um, I changed my mind on that one, Ryan. Um, so one time, and then if we're mowing clover, it depends on the growing season, but it may be a couple of times during the summer. Do you ever use um, malort? Um, oh, my. I uh, brain fart on that one. Do you ever basically do you ever use the sprays to uh, I forget what they call it in the bottle. Uh, it's like a deer fence. 
um, but it's milorganite um, spraying to basically create this nasty smell that deters deer. Um, this is once again a temporary fix to try and let the plants grow up enough to where they can withstand um, browse pressure. In all my travels, I have seen this work very few times as far as we already know because we're trying to deter the deer. So we already know we have a high deer density or we just have a small plot. What we need to look at is, is the deer herd density too high already? If it is, our problem isn't going to be fixed by this spray. Our problem is going to be fixed by harvesting enough does. Um, here's where we go back to the overall grand scheme of things, though. In most of the landscapes, a lot of landscapes, and I say that because we've covered so much area in, in the years of consulting and prior that uh, that we, we, we can say pretty firmly that most of our habitat is not in place, and especially native habitat. Most of our forests are overgrown. There are closed canopies, not a lot of benefits. A lot of our ground, if it's crop ground, um, it's going to be bare ground a lot of the year, or it's going to be grain, corn that's not edible, that deer aren't eating a lot unless they're really hungry, maybe soybeans, um, but it's just not a lot of quality native vegetation. This sounds like a problem that usually can be fixed by just getting more food available to make sure your food plot isn't the only thing providing food. Um, get some get chainsaws out. Let's get some woody browse to where deer are feeding on woody browse during uh, throughout the year. So when they're feeding there, they're not feeding in your food plot. Get some native vegetation growing in the understories of your canopy by removing some crap trees and releasing those crop trees. Um, that comes with a chainsaw or a hatchet and a bottle of herbicide. We want sunlight harnessed in the soil and then growing to where we have plenty of species within reach of deer. The more food available we can get across the whole landscape, the less time they're going to spend standing in your food plot waiting for a soybean to germinate so they can eat it before it has a chance to really survive um, the browse. So get more forage available. Another thing you can do, and you can continue this with the spray, but it's only a temporary fix. You could also plant, at the same time that you plant soybeans, plant some millet. Cheap seed, plant the millet at the same time you plant your soybeans. That millet's going to grow a little bit faster. It's going to help protect and almost serve as a big brother standing over your soybeans as they grow. And then a couple weeks go by and those soybeans and milo or millet are growing. You can go in and spray it and that's going to kill the millet and then release those soybeans. But I can say this with 100% confidence. Deer herd densities are one of the biggest problems with food plots. And it's because we don't harvest the deer that we should. We don't provide the native vegetation that we should. And therefore, we rely too much on our food plots to provide year-round forage for our deer. And that's not the way nature was designed. Um, can you go over no-till beans with no drill available? Um, that's the spray, the plant, and the roll method. When it comes to soybeans, it is crucial that you do this before rain. Um, and it is crucial that you have plenty of thatch, plenty of growth from the previous food plot to where it can protect those soybeans. That's a big seed laying out on the ground, perfect pickings for a, a crow or a, a songbird to fly by, a dove, a turkey to see that and eat that before it germinates. So if you're planting soybeans without, without a drill and you're trying to prevent tillage, Props to you um, for doing that. Scout, hunt, eat. 
um, because you're concerned about soil health. That's where you need to time it before rain. And this isn't just a one quarter quarter inch rain. This is like three days of solid rains, um, not not downpour rains. That's where it gets real finicky. Um, you can't go when it's going to wash your seed away, but you can't go when it's just going to hit it and then let it sit. So make sure you've got three days of good soaking rain or a couple of days of a good soaking rain, and you should be fine. What cover crops to plant with clover? How do you uh, how often do you get a soil test? What essential tools do you need as a food plotter? What kind of uh, follow-up after planting? How to know when to plant? How to know when to plant all comes down to soil temperature and the plant species you're planting. Um, 50 to 65 degrees soil temperature at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, 2 inches deep. Basically, it comes down to the time of the year for us. Turkey season, um, during turkey season is usually when we get the right soil temperatures to where we can plant soybeans to have success, and the same time for heritage blend. Um, what cover crops for clover when you're planting? I, I covered it earlier. Wheat, oats are great. Um, if you're doing it, um, if you're looking for something in the spring to help it, buckwheat's a really good, cheap way to do it as well. How often do soil tests? Every single year. What essential tools do you need as a food plotter? Depends on the budget, depends on how many food plots. If you only have one or two food plots and you're looking to spend some money, I would probably rather you do it on hiring a TSI crew, a timber stand improvement crew, buying some chainsaws, um, buying some drip torches. You're going to do much more for the landscape than, than focusing all your time and money on one acre or less than five acres. Once again, look at that ratio of how many acres you have total to manage, how many you have for food plots. Um, ben Harshine asks, plot shapes for getting them into bow range, entrance, exit, strategies for hunting plots. Woo, man, this is a fun one, and I feel like this is one that Matt and I really, really work a lot with landowners. Um, this is where we try to limit every food plot to where we don't have anything bigger than five acres. Um, this is where when we lay out a road system, we really try to be 100% focused on our entry and exit with the roads and also entry and exit with our hunting strategy. Um, this is where roads don't go through food plots in a chain game of drive through food plot A to get to food plot B to get to food plot C to get to food plot D. We don't want to drive through them. We want a circular or we want a winding road to where we never have to really drive through our food plots. Then that's also crucial to where our road system doesn't ever go right through the food plot. Now there's ways, that, there's times where it, it has to, but when it comes to hunting strategy, we never want to put our feet in a food plot going to or from um to hunt because that's when every time you do that you can be alerting deer and uh it's it's really really important that we're not if we're wanting to harvest deer out of food plots that we're not spinning and putting a lot of pressure on those so sizes i really really like less than two acre food plots if i could have i would rather have five food plots that are one acre than two food plots that are 10 acres a piece i would rather have less acres in food plots than have giant food plots um so when it comes to shape, long skinny are great, but at the same time, you've got, if you're long skinny in timber country, there's a lot of wasted, um, lower productive areas in that food plot growing right next to the timber. So a, a square is, that's where you're going to get most productive food plots because you have more sunlight available to that food plot and you're not competing with trees. Um, I really like kind of that one to two acre food plot that's a rectangle. And at the same time, this answer that Mr. Hodgson has, I would answer more in a 
edge feathering technique than a layout and design of the food plot. Edge feathering, closed edge feathering, open edge feathering to where I can create and steer deer by my stand. Woo, that was like shotgun fire, drinking from a fire hose for an hour and 15 minutes on all things food plots. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it. Um, getting back to this, how do you win this hat? I want the the person that shares this podcast when we post it on Facebook, shares it, recommends it. Or, I Sorry, whoever shares it and tags five buddies in that post um, recommending our podcast to them uh whoever does that and has the most interaction on their share through the next week i'll send you a land and legacy hat and decal and uh, that's how you're going to have to win it so appreciate you guys for listening go check out for love of land podcast this week and we will catch you guys next time